We are Centrepoint Church. This is a recent recording from our Sunday morning gathering. We hope you can join us at the Odeon Cinema in Guildford, Sundays at 10am. Enjoy the message. Good morning, Centrepoint Church. We're going to be looking at Daniel 4 today. And I'd like to start off by talking about goodies and baddies. Now, my children love to divide the world into goodies and baddies. So when we're reading, say, Jack the Beanstalk, they want to be clear that Jack's the goodie and the giant is the baddie, even though we might think, well, Jack seems to be the one doing all the stealing. I wonder if we ever grow out of this approach to life. Let's start off with something a little bit different today, a little bit of fun. I'm going to read out a list of names and what you have to do is say either goodie or baddie. And just because you're probably at home, um, you can speak it out loud without being embarrassed. So let's have a go. Donald Trump. The Queen. Nebuchadnezzar. Adele. Daniel. So there we go, our short list. I hope that was a bit of fun. I wonder if many of you, when you heard the word Nebuchadnezzar, said baddie, especially if you've been listening to these talks over the last few weeks. After all, in Daniel 2, Nebuchadnezzar gets furious with all the wise men of Babylon when they can't tell him his dream and the interpretation. Thankfully, Daniel gets them out of that scrape. Then in Daniel 3, Nebuchadnezzar forces everyone to worship his image of gold and then he attempts to murder Daniel's friends in the fiery furnace. Amazingly, God protects them from the flames, but it seems pretty clear, doesn't it, by now that Daniel's our goodie, our hero, and Nebuchadnezzar is our baddie. But God's word is full of surprises and what we're going to find in Daniel 4 is a bombshell that greets us right at the start of the passage, Daniel has handed over the pen to what we think is his archenemy, Nebuchadnezzar. So today, Nebuchadnezzar is writing a guest post, as it were, in Daniel's blog, and he's going to tell us the story of the last eight years or so of his life and how God has turned his life around. So he starts by introducing himself. Let's start reading from the beginning of Daniel chapter 4. King Nebuchadnezzar, to the nations and peoples of every language who live in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. Wow, what a contrast, isn't it, to the chapters two and three where Nebuchadnezzar seems so full of himself. How, we might ask, has God worked in the life of this man who we've seen has been so proud and brutal? Well, he's going to tell us the story. Let's carry on with verse four. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. 
When the magicians, enchanters, astrologers and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. Finally, Daniel came into my presence and I told him the dream. He is called Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. So in today's account, Nebuchadnezzar starts out contented and prosperous. He is at home in his palace, rich and powerful. He's seemingly untouchable, but then he has a dream. And for all the criticisms we might throw at him, Nebuchadnezzar has a spiritual openness, doesn't he? We saw that back in chapter two when he was so desperate to find out the meaning of the dream about this large statue. In our culture today, we might just dismiss a disturbing dream as our mind psychologically processing the events of the day. But in doing so, we limit ourselves to to psychology as a way of understanding things. And often that may be the case, but Nebuchadnezzar can tell that this dream is so unusual or maybe so vivid that perhaps the gods are speaking to him. That's how he thinks about it. So he asks for help in understanding his dream. Unfortunately, he asks everyone he knows first, apart from Daniel. He asks his magicians, his enchanters, his astrologers and his diviners. Now, it seems he's mellowed a bit since the account in chapter two, because this time he tells them his dream first, rather than insisting they tell him his dream before they interpret it. Nebuchadnezzar probably knew all along that Daniel would be the one to interpret his dream. After all, only Daniel could interpret the dream of the large statue. And in the next verse, Nebuchadnezzar even addresses him, uh, Daniel as chief of the magicians. But it still doesn't make it any easier for Nebuchadnezzar to ask him. Daniel represented like the foreign gods from Israel, not Babylon's own gods. So Daniel was the last of the wise men to be consulted. And I wonder how we compare with Nebuchadnezzar. It's easy, isn't it, to think that Nebuchadnezzar should have known to ask Daniel first. But where do we turn in our lives when we need advice? Do we turn first to our own ability, our wisdom? Do we consult our phones, perhaps, and see what Google has to say about it? Do we put something out on social media and ask for ideas there? Of course, none of these is wrong, but how far down our list is looking at what the Bible speaks into our situation? How many shoulder shrugs do we have to get first before we would actually turn to a Christian friend or our life group leader or pastor for godly wisdom? Now, the order in which Nebuchadnezzar sought advice for his troubles revealed the priorities of his heart. And I wonder what the order in which we seek advice and wisdom says about our hearts and our priorities. Now, if that challenge speaks to you, then I want to invite you right now to bring to mind an area of your life where you're anxious or uncertain. And I invite you now to bring it to God in prayer, to see what the Bible has to say on this matter and to maybe reach out uh, later on to a Christian friend who could speak with godly wisdom into this situation. But let's take about 10 seconds right now just to pause and to think of such a situation and silently offer it up to God.
Okay, let's carry on with our reading and hear about Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And remember that Belteshazzar is his name for Daniel. Verse 9. I said, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here is my dream, interpret it for me. These are the visions I saw while lying in bed. I looked, and before me there stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it, the wild animals found shelter, and the birds lived in its branches. From it, every creature was fed. In the visions I saw while lying in bed, I looked, and there before me was a holy one, a messenger, coming down from heaven. He called out in a loud voice, Cut down the tree and trim off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from it, from under it, and the birds from its branches. But let the stump and its roots, bound with iron and bronze, remain in the ground, in the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass by for him. The decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the most high is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets them, sets over them the lowliest of people. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belteshazzar, tell me what it means, for none of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it for me. But you can, because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Now, there's all sorts of problems, aren't there, with Nebuchadnezzar's theology in this chapter. For a start, he talks about the holy gods rather than the one God. He insists on calling Daniel Belteshazzar after the Babylonian god Bel. However, at the start of this section, Nebuchadnezzar says to Daniel, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you. And at the end, he says, the spirit of the holy gods is in you. So using our modern language, he does recognise that the Holy Spirit of God lives in Daniel. Daniel has quietly made himself distinctive, hasn't he? In chapter one, do you remember, he and his friends chose to eat more humbly, to set themselves apart and to remind their own hearts that their loyalty was to the God of heaven, not to the king of Babylon. And then in chapter three, his friends refused to follow the king's decree to worship the golden image. Their obedience to God was costly, very costly, but it was not showy. It was evident, but it was not pushy. It wasn't forced upon anyone else. So I wonder if, for us, whether those around us, colleagues, family, friends, can see that God's Holy Spirit lives in us through how we live our lives. It might be that we might be the last people that they seek advice from because they don't share our faith. Just like Daniel was the last of the wise men that Nebuchadnezzar turned to. 
But he knew, didn't he, that Daniel followed, followed a powerful God. And for us, it's really important that we don't hide the Spirit's presence in our lives. So let us be the people that others might turn to in a crisis. Perhaps now is that time when so many are anxious, when the security of this world is so evidently paper thin, when death is being reported on daily and people are more aware than ever of their mortality. So what can we change in our lives to be distinctive like Daniel? Let's go on to hear Daniel's interpretation of the dream. Verse 19. Then Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Belteshazzar answered, my lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. Now, up to this point, Daniel has been almost flawless, hasn't he? But we see in this verse, perhaps a chink in his armour. He's starting to see what this dream means and actually that it's bad news for Nebuchadnezzar. He's terrified, perhaps, of being the messenger who gets shot, isn't he? But it's fair enough, maybe. After all, Daniel is standing before the man who's already sentenced him to death in the past. So no wonder he's afraid. No wonder Daniel says, if only the dream applied to your enemies. But of course, he knows that it doesn't. So Daniel's afraid. We're afraid sometimes, aren't we? We might be afraid in this current season about infection, about work, about money. And that's understandable. But what matters is what we do with that fear. Do we let it control us? Or do we hand it over to God and act with courage? Now, for me at home, this uh, in our family, this was our memory verse. Give all your worries to God, for he cares about you. 1 Peter 5, 7, a great memory verse. And I'm showing it to you deliberately in my son's Reuben, Reuben's handwriting. Um, not because I want to show off his handwriting, but because I think young children have a lot to teach us about trust. As adults, we often prefer, don't we, to rely on our own abilities. But when a young child looks to his parents saying, will you keep me safe tonight? We know that his focus has shifted from the scariness of the monster or whatever it is that's troubling him across to trusting in the parent who is able to keep him safe and reassure him. So once we've surrendered our fears to God, it liberates us to act in the right way. If we allow fear to dominate, then fear will drive our actions. So I wonder here now in this passage, if Daniel perhaps shoots up a silent prayer to God and focuses his mind on God rather than on Nebuchadnezzar. And so he carries on with interpreting the dream. And he starts with the good news. The tree that you saw, which grew large and strong, with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the wild animals and having nesting places in its branches for the birds. Your majesty, you are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. Your majesty saw a holy one, a messenger, 
coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the wild animals until seven times pass for him. This is the interpretation, your majesty, and this is the decree the Most High has issued against my Lord the King. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. Now, most scholars interpret these seven times here in verses 23 and 25 as meaning seven years. And this account reminds me a little bit of Joseph's interpretation. Do you remember it way back in Genesis 41 of Pharaoh's dream, where he warns Pharaoh of the coming seven years of famine? Except that the judgment here coming to Nebuchadnezzar is much more personal. And as we we're about to find out in the next verse, whereas Pharaoh gave well, sorry, whereas God gave Pharaoh seven years to prepare for the coming disaster, Nebuchadnezzar only got one year. Let's read on. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is this not the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence? By my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty, so um, going back a bit, Nebuchadnezzar was terrified by his dream at the time. Daniel was terrified by what he had to say to him, but does speak it out clearly to the king. And then here we get to verse 28, and it's all a bit of an anticlimax. We've been left wondering, is Nebuchadnezzar going to fly off the handle again? What grisly death will he have up his sleeve for Daniel and his friends, perhaps? But after eventually discovering the truth and getting some very clear advice from Daniel about how to avoid the coming disaster. He does absolutely nothing about it for a whole year. And so he goes back to form, admiring the view of all he owned. Now, it's got to be said that he did have a lot to look out on and admire. The view from his palace roof afforded um, a, a wide vista of several ornate temples. He could see the hanging gardens of Babylon, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And the city walls were apparently so thick that chariots driven by four horses could pass by one another on the top of the walls. So here he is, focused upon his wealth, upon his power and upon his achievements. I wonder if he even remembered Daniel's advice from 12 months earlier. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. I wonder where we focus our gaze. Do we, where do we look with our hearts and minds? What preoccupies us when we have a spare moment? 
I sometimes I wonder if we sometimes look out like Nebuchadnezzar, satisfied and complacent on all that we own, what we've achieved, perhaps. I wonder how much thought space we give to scriptures and prophecies that we've heard in the past or even in our morning reading that have challenged us. Isn't it all too easy to judge King Nebuchadnezzar here? Look out, Nebuchadnezzar, can't you see what's coming? We know how the story progresses, perhaps. But have you ever listened to a Bible talk or done a Bible reading and then five minutes later you can barely hear, barely remember what's been said? Now, sometimes um, the challenge from God gets taken away or we allow ourselves to be distracted. Do you remember the parable of the sower in Matthew 13? We need to keep reminding ourselves of God's words to us or they're too quickly forgotten. So Nebuchadnezzar sought godly wisdom. He listened to it. He discerned the true interpretation that Daniel brought to him. And then he promptly ignored it. God is not impressed with us listening to these talks, Bible talks, reading our Bible, listening to fellow Christians, if it doesn't affect our lives. When God gives the law to the people in Deuteronomy, he knows how forgetful we are. So he says, these commandments that I give you today, they are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. I wonder if you thought those Christian wristbands were a modern invention. Or well, no, we can see from this scripture that the idea of tying God's commandments onto our hands is thousands of years old as an idea. How can we be reminding ourselves of God's words to us? Let us perhaps leave Bibles open on the table. How about putting your Bible on top of your phone so that you read that before you check your messages in the morning? Let us put verses on post-it notes next to our computer screens. But of course, these can't just be decorations around our houses. They have to be written upon our hearts. And that was Nebuchadnezzar's problem, wasn't it? He didn't take Daniel's word to heart. So as he stands here proudly on his rooftop, thinking about how invincible he is, let's see what happens next. Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what's decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. God humbles this great king. He loses everything, his authority, his social standing, and his dignity. And this isn't just a quick lesson for him. We've mentioned earlier that this went on for seven years. Perhaps that's how proud Nebuchadnezzar was, that it took seven years of degradation before he would finally acknowledge that the Most High God is in charge and not him. 
the text here doesn't fully explain what's gone on in his, going on in his mind, but he clearly loses his sanity to such an extent that he can't live with other people. His hair grows long, his nails grow long. He becomes beast-like, both in his appearance and his behaviour. Just when he was just when he was stood on the rooftops, lording it over everything, God decided that it was time for him to be brought low. And this is surely about as low as you can get. Perhaps this reminds us of the story of Job, if we know that story. He had everything that he prized on this earth taken away from him. But what's different was that Job was a godly man and his humbling was a test of devotion to God. In contrast, Nebuchadnezzar was a proud man and his humbling was to teach him to honour the Most High God. And in the end, Nebuchadnezzar learns his lesson. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honoured and glorified him who lives forever. Isn't this an amazing reversal? For seven years, Nebuchadnezzar has been outside those city walls in the wilderness. His hair and nails had grown so long that he looked more, more like a bird than a man. Can you imagine him crawling around on the ground eating grass? But eventually, his time is up. He looks up towards heaven. God restores his sanity. And finally, he praises God. And this man, despised and forgotten about by his people, suddenly comes out with these wonderful words of praise. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honour and splendour were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisers and nobles sought me out and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. And now again, a bit like the story of Job, his worldly fortunes are restored and they exceed even the riches he had before. Now that his heart is right before God, he can be entrusted to rule well. Now that he recognises that the God of Daniel is truly the king of heaven, God restores his social status and his greatness. I wonder how God is seeking to humble each of us during the current lockdown. We might not be crawling around in the grass, soaked by the morning dew, but we have had a lot of freedoms taken away from us that we may have taken for granted. What is God teaching us through this current time? If we are on furlough or less busy than usual, I wonder if God is teaching us to be still and to know that he is God. Or are we just filling up all our spare time with endless distractions? Perhaps we're juggling work and homeschooling and life is busier than ever. In this case, I wonder if God is teaching us to lean on him when we're at the end of our own resources. Or will we just choose to white knuckle it through until the schools open again? 
I remember a time a number of years ago when I retrained to be a maths teacher. They say that you don't know if you're going to be a good teacher until you've tried it. Well, I tried it and I fell flat on my face. I soon discovered that I didn't have what it takes to be a maths teacher. And not since getting an F in religious studies at school had I tried something and so comprehensively failed. Now, this wasn't as profound a humbling as Nebuchadnezzar. I wasn't eating grass for seven years, but I was exhausted and anxious for two, two years. It was not an experience I would ever want to repeat. And yet I see through it in hindsight how God humbled me and led me to lean on him more during that time. Let me just clarify what I mean by humbling. I don't mean shaming. When someone shames you, they treat you as less than you are. They demean you, demean you as a child of God. But when we are humbled, God takes us down a notch or two in our own estimation. So I'm no longer the centre of the universe. Contrary to what we might hear from Disney films, whatever we put our minds to might not work out as we wanted to. And that was my lesson, or one lesson from two years of teaching in a school. None of us is the saviour of the world. And when we are furloughed or retire from our work, someone else will take up our responsibilities and probably do a perfectly good job, if not better than us. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was humbled, and in the end, he learned from it. But hundreds of years later, there came a man called Jesus, who humbled himself more than anyone who had humbled themselves before. In closing, there will come a day when every proud knee bends before Jesus, the name that is above every name. So let us do this willingly now. Let us act now with humility. Let us not be humiliated like Nebuchadnezzar was because he refused to listen to the clear warnings let us humble ourselves before our God. Let our tongues acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Thanks for listening. Please do come and visit us Sundays, 10am at the Odeon Cinema in Guildford. We look forward to seeing you.